On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we talk with comic book artist Jan Dersima, one of the definitive creators of the Star Wars Expanded Universe in the pages of Dark Horse Comics. And my son Scott and I weigh in on the latest from Marvel Studios, Spider-Man Homecoming. Now, straight from the bioluminescent jungles on the planet Felucia, where the humidity is like 105, this is 1.21 Gigawatts! There and welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts, episode number 18 for July 2017. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. I'm referring to movies, TV, comics, games, theme parks, and more. If all that sounds good to you, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. Unless you've been trapped under heavy machinery, or perhaps the rubble of a nearby superhero conflict, you're at least partially familiar with the -the behind-the-scenes backstory of the new film, Spider-Man Homecoming. Sony acquired the film rights to the character in 1999 for a reported $7 million. From that investment, they produced five films, three starring Tobey Maguire, two starring Andrew Garfield, to diminishing critical and financial returns. Meanwhile, Marvel Studios continued to crank out multiple massively successful films a year, often starring characters hundreds of times more obscure. Four years ago, you had never heard the word Groot. Basically, Marvel Studios had a successful box office formula, while Sony seemed to be losing their focus and their audience. And then, against all odds and to the delight of Spider fans, Sony and Marvel Studios remembered that they both love money! and the value of Spider-Man as an intellectual property and decided to play nice. Sony would pay for the production of a rebooted Spider franchise, Marvel Studios would take the creative lead, and Spidey would be interwoven into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It started as the cinematic reboot everyone said they didn't want, until suddenly it was the freshest thing to happen to the character in years. In fact, it's 92% fresh at Rotten Tomatoes. And as of this writing, the movie holds a gross of $207 million domestic and $467 million worldwide. As is often the case when a new Marvel Studios movie hits the multiplex, my 12-year-old sons Scott and I soak it all in and report back to you to share our knee-jerk reactions. You're welcome! But keep in mind, there'll be spoilers ahead. So if you still have plans to get caught in the web of Spider-Man Homecoming, you might want to skip ahead a bit. But if you want to wallow in all things Spidey and learn about a bunch of the spider lore Easter eggs that populate this movie, keep listening as Scott and I sing the movie's praises. Literally. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins the web, any size, catches thieves. Just, Just like, like flies. flies. Hey there, look out. Here, there hey, there's the, the Spider Man. He catches thieves and crooks, is what we're trying to say. Sometimes at the same time, that Spider Man. It's incredible. His theme song and him in real life. So amazing. So amazing. And you know when he was the most incredible, Scott? What? During Spider Man Homecoming. What a great movie. What a great segue. Thanks. Don't mind if I do. Um, so Scott and I uh, did just recently take in what is currently the number one movie in the country slash world, Spider-Man Homecoming. 
from the good people at Sony and Marvel Studios finally working together like a friendly movie studio neighbors should. We live in a new world, <laughs> a brave new world. We do. I it, I don't know if you, I know that you're sort of joking and we're being snarky when we say that, but for us old timers, boy, it's so cool that this is actually happening that Spider-Man gets to play in that same sandbox and maybe more importantly gets to be produced and written by a studio, Marvel Studios I'm talking about, that get the character in a way that I don't think anyone has really fully pulled off on the big screen before. Hmm. That's a very interesting point of view, Brad. <laughs> well, thanks, and thanks for addressing me <laughs> by my first name. That's weird. That's weird. He's You're my weird. son. What's going on? Thank you. I get that. Um, so uh, you may or may not contest that it's the best version of the on-screen Spider-Man considering you just watched a clip of Japanese Spider-Man and uh, I think that if I would let you watch that that might become your new favorite TV show it yes <laughs> <laughs> he was pretty great okay so let's talk about Homecoming um, so I know uh, you've really only seen one other Spider-Man movie, which I don't know if that makes me a good parent or a bad parent, um, but you've seen uh, one outing from the Amazing Spider-Man series, right? Amazing yep. Spider-Man number one. So that's really all you have to compare uh, Spider-Man to. But how did you feel between Spider-Man in that movie or Peter Parker, maybe more importantly in that movie, and what Tom Holland did in Spider-Man Homecoming? Homecoming was so much better. Yeah, why is that? Because the plot is just better. In Amazing Spider-Man, it's just uninteresting. <laughs> it was just uninteresting. It's the just the uninteresting. build with the vulture and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um so a lot of people talk about Spider-Man Homecoming as feeling like this teen comedy in a way as well, uh, similar to John Hughes movies from the 80s, for those of you that yes. know what that means, which may or may not be you, Scott. I know you know some. You've seen some. I, yeah, I have. Yeah. So uh, I'm here to tell you as someone who's seen a lot of John Hughes movies that... So many. Gosh darn it, if they don't come really close to sort of fulfilling that promise and being a John Hughes movie... Uh, if for no other reason that there's a lot of crazy high school personalities that uh, all sort of seem like lovable losers, but pretty unique in their own way, and a few other really awesome nods. Um, I'm thinking of for sure the moment that was very Ferris Bueller, and then they frankly go right on out and say, yes, yes, we know we're doing Ferris Bueller yeah. right now. Yeah, which was really cool. Very funny. Um, what did you think about... So you've seen... You saw the lizard in Amazing Spider-Man yes. 1. How does he compare with the vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming? I think the lizard is part of... Is a big part of what makes the Amazing Spider-Man so uninteresting, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. You or, just didn't care? No, I didn't. Hmm. But do you, you do care about the vulture? Yes. Why is that? Because his... um. His backstory was really good, mm -hmm. and the lizard didn't have one. His <laughs> was lizard, non-existent. Hmm, his was <laughs> something that did not occur. Right, okay. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the vulture's backstory, because that ties in nicely with something else I want to bring up, which is like the gigantic mound of 
Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel comic book stuff that makes an appearance in this. Like, yes. Marvel Studios did not shy away when they knew, hey, we get to play with Spider-Man and, you know, it's going to be, it belongs to Sony still, but we're going to get to play with it. Boy, they firmly rooted him in the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, in a big, big way. Um, obviously with Iron Man all over the place, mm-hmm. but but in a lot of other ways too. So, all right, so let's take a step back. The Vulture's backstory. So his backstory is, uh, do you want to summarize that? What was, what was it that appealed to you? Um, I just liked his motivations. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Remind yeah. me of those. Talk to me about those, what you liked. Where he just wanted to protect his family. Okay. So we know that in the very big, like when we meet him for the first time, he's, he's basically part of a cleanup crew yeah. who, who goes around and they clean up messes left after superhero mm-hmm. incidents. In this case, they're cleaning up after the Battle of New York. Yeah, three Af- years ago. Yeah, yeah. After uh, the Avengers took on the Chitari. Um, and they sort of get kicked out of a job by an organization called Damage Control. Damage Control. Which is in the comics. Did you know that? Yes. I can, do you? Oh, right. You've talked about it before. I've talked about it. Oh, boy. I'm losing my mind. Can you tell us more about that? <laughs> I can pull out the Damage Control Limited series from the 80s and oh. put that right in your hands. Um, Damage Control is really just that. It was sort of a sort of a comedic book, slightly comedic, that was exactly what the movie sets it up to be, which is like, here's the here's the organization that has to go in and clean up after gigantic superhero battles in the movie it is positioned as a joint venture between the government and tony mm-hmm. stark i guess yeah which ticks off the character of the vulture even more when he's like a we just lost this contract and b they're making money even when they're wrecking the city tony stark is making money seemingly which yeah. really ticks him off to no end so that is interesting you're right so in the comics was damage control like similar to what the vulture was doing where they just had a contract that said that they could go in and yeah yeah pretty much that that was just sort of their job i mean they weren't they weren't evil they weren't bad guys they were if anything they were just sort of like these it almost think about like the early days of um agent colson and shield in in the marvel movies like i remember when he in Thor, when the destroyer, the big robot, comes down and yeah. they're out in the desert and, and everyone's like, is this one of Stark's? And even Coulson is like, I don't know. Nobody tells me anything. <laughs> so, like, the feeling at that moment, which was sort of like, here's guys in suits. They have no powers. It's just their job to deal with this stuff that they have no idea how to deal with. Yeah. Sort of that feeling in Damage Control, if I'm remembering right, um, which was always kind of con- always sort of fun and cool. Um, and... Uh, I can't believe now that they're actually in the movies. Crazy. But then again, this is the same week that um, Squirrel Girl and Speedball and Night Thrasher have been cast. So I, I can't believe that anything is Brave happening. Brave New World. Brave New World, indeed. Um, so Iron Man, he's all over this movie. Was that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think, for Spider-Man? So like in the movie, we in the, in the cinematic universe, we know that Iron Man gave him his costume. Yeah. We know that his costume in this movie has all kinds of crazy gadgets and stuff. Um, is that cool that that it's that he's so involved in the story, or do you think it it distracts from the Spider-Man story? No, no, I think it's cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I know that some people have talked about how like no, that's it's not a Spider-Man movie anymore. It's all this, but mm. I don't 
think he's in it so much that it really distracts yeah. a huge amount. It's just sort of a nice and featuring special guest star. In fact, the more I thought about it, um, Iron Man was never actually involved in any of the fights That's in this true. movie, right? Or was he for a... No, he wasn't, was he? He, he would always really just sort of come and clean up Peter's messes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, sort of another thing. Just about all of the badness that happens in this movie <laughs> has to do with the fact that Peter messes up. That Peter Parker is not good at superheroing. Right? The ATM thing that blows up the grocery store. Yeah. And then the Staten Island Ferry. Kind of Spider-Man's fault in both cases. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Spidey, he'll learn one day. I want to talk about the endless pile of Easter eggs and uh, little hidden nuggets in this movie yeah. um, that I will, uh, I want to partly give a shout out to a, an amazing article by The Hollywood Reporter that broke down some of these. I mean, some of them were fairly obvious to comic book readers and some of them you had to look really hard. Uh, and some of them I did not know about, I will admit, including the what? fact that... Um, apparently there's a history of Iron Man hooking up Peter Parker with uh, special suits and web shooters, etc., etc., um, over the course of the years in comics. Okay, so... One, I know, right? One of the interesting things, and I will admit, I am not nearly as much of a scholar of Miles Morales Spider-Man as I am of Peter Parker Spider-Man. What? But in this, there was kind of a nod to Miles Morales. Really? I know, right? And that nod is the character of Aaron Davis, played by Donald Glover uh, in the movie. So yes. Donald Glover seems like he's just a character who is looking, you know, maybe he's, you know, sort of on the wrong side of the law. He doesn't seem like a really bad, bad guy. He's no. just a dude who, like, he knows how of a way he can get some money. And so maybe he can get some special tech to pull off this heist. Um, that character is apparently the uncle of Miles Morales. Really? In the comics, yes. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. So there's no reference to Miles Morales, but we're referencing this guy, which I know that a lot of fans are like, <gasps> this might mean that we get Miles Morales in the movies, the ultimate Spider-Man. Um Often with superhero movies, people complain about there being too many villains. And this movie had a lot hmm. of villains, right? Yes. But did it seem like too many to you? And would you like to break them down? Shall we break down the villains or at least recall them all? Yes. Okay. You begin. Um, Shocker. All right. So we've got the Shocker. We've got the Vulture. We've talked about the Vulture. Yep. We've got the Shocker. Yes. The Shocker. Yes. Who else do we have in this? We have uh, the character, um, someone who's wor who's on the Vultures. So that's just sort of it. It's a lot of guys on the Vultures crew, really. Yeah. So the Tinkerer is the one who's always fiddling with this stuff. And these characters are like first 10 issues of Amazing oh, yeah. Spider-Man. Like they're that old, that obscure, and frankly, that unused. I mean, a lot of these guys are characters <laughs> that, like, you don't read a lot of comics with the Tinkerer in them. It's like third, second issue. Yeah, I think I think that he was maybe second, second issue. Shocker would come and go, of course, over the years. And I know that you've been waiting for me to talk about who is this dude who's on the, he's bald, he had a tattoo. Yeah. And we see him in jail at the end. Do you remember what his tattoo was of? No. Okay. 
Um, I didn't get a good look at it. The character's name is Mac Gargan. Uh, and Mac Gargan for Spider Files is the real name of the scorpion. Okay. And that indeed is what his what his tattoo was. A scorpion. A scorpion tattoo. So I don't know if that means that we're ever going to get the scorpion, but uh, but we'll see. So, Vulture Shocker, Proto Scorpion, Tinkerer, two shockers, honestly. Two shockers. Um, and who else? Who else? Who else? Is that it? Maybe that's it. Or the other bad Stark, guys. Kind of. Was oh, Tony Stark the Tony bad Stark? guy? Tony Stark is just sort of a big old bossy big brother mm-hmm. in a weird way. Um, tracking Tony Stark's personality over the Marvel Studios movies is really sort of an amazing thing. That he went from like, I'm a rogue, I can do whatever I want, you can't have my suit, to then in Civil War being like the, eh, you know what, maybe we, yeah. need, maybe we need to cool it and let the government be in charge. And then this one sort of like trying to be a mentor to next mm-hmm. generation of superheroes and not being a great one, not particularly attentive, yeah. but uh, being plenty bossy, that's for sure. Um, what else? Hey, what did you think about the special effects in this movie? Oh, they were really cool. Where we just watched a clip from the Andy McGuire Spider-Man movie, and I was just thinking that the, um, the special effects in Homecoming were much better than... Oh, Toby Maguire. Yeah. Yeah. What did I say? Andy. Andy McGuire. That's his little brother. (laughs) (laughs) Toby Maguire's little brother, Andy. He did all the stunts. (laughs) Who knew? Exclusive factoid. You're welcome. Um, Yeah, Toby Maguire. Um, The effects in the early Spider-Man movies, for sure, especially the first one, Mm -hmm. uh, are a little wonky. Yeah. It definitely looks a little CGI. I'm going to admit, there were times in Homecoming, even, that I thought, eh. Really? It looks a little, but you know what? Maybe that's just inherently that it looks unnatural for a human being to be jumping around in such weird contortiony, yeah. acrobatic ways in a skin tight suit. And it seems like the webbing, mm-hmm. the, like the substance, is so unnatural. It might just remind people of CGI. Oh right, that it's it's just something that would never occur in nature, and so therefore yeah. it looks fakey. Um, yeah, it's, that's possible. That's possible. Um, that said, I mean, I don't want, ultimately, you know, if I had to go on the record though and say, did the effects stink or were they good? They were pretty darn good. Yeah. Vulture looks great. Spider-Man actually looks really great. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of easy special effects, like not the big marquee special effects, but like just him and his putting on his suit, like triggering it and it tightens on his body. Yeah. Like, I don't really know how they did that. It looked pretty great. Yeah, I don't know how um, they did that either. That was... That was cool. Pretty slick. Pretty slick. Uh, so lots of other nods to, to the comic as well, not just the bad guys, but, um, you know, subtly sliding in a, a split face shot of like half Peter's face, half the Spider-Man mask, um, akin to decades worth of my spider senses tingling drawings from the comics. Who knew? Very cool. Um, even when I was watching it, that didn't really occur to me. Uh, and I've got to say, I really, really love all the random stuff that goes on in this high school and it cracks me up. Um, which I think is testament to so many good Marvel studios movies, which is that, uh, I don't, I don't necessarily always care or need to see them as superheroes because I really just enjoy these characters and watching them do their thing. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, have there been superheroes in this movie? I wasn't what? paying attention. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Can I give you another random little factoid? Sure. Uh, the so Spider Man in his suit there is the voice. There's a voice sort of like in Tony's suits. Yes. Right, and he he calls it Karen. He Karen. decides that her name is going to be Karen. So it's sort of like the equivalent of Jarvis in the Iron Man suit, right? Jarvis. Um, so the actress that plays Karen, the suit in the uh, the the voice in the suit is Jennifer Connelly. Yep. Um, she's a pretty famous actress. Uh, her one of the interesting things, though, about Jennifer Connelly. Oh, Jennifer Connelly played. Um, she was the love interest in the first Hulk movie, the Ang Lee one. You haven't seen that one. But she's no, she's played in Marvel movies. But more interestingly than that, Jennifer Connelly uh, in real life is married to Paul Bettany, who plays the Vision, who played the voice of Jarvis. Wow. There is no way this is a coincidence. There's no way. That's pretty cool. So I think that they just sort of decided like that this married couple should both be the voices in super suits in a Marvel superhero movie. And uh, that totally cracks me up, and I like it a lot. Um, what else? Uh, Stan Lee, of course, makes a cameo, as right? does Chris Evans as Captain America <laughs> in the most ridiculous cameos ever. Uh, they're really, really funny, I think. Yep. I really like that we're seeing a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe from the perspective of just some random kids in high school that sort of like, what? Who's that? Oh my gosh, that's cool. When the reality is these characters never touch their lives at all. All they know is that there was a big fight in Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. That cracks me up. Uh, Along those lines, as if I needed to tell you this, please stay for the after credits scene. It is very funny. And I will also say is another nod to the after credits scene of Ferris Bueller. Hmm. Do you remember the after credit scene of Ferris Bueller? Yeah, it's the school bus, right? Where the principal gets no, into the even school later, bus? No, even later than that. At the very tail end of the credits, there's another scene. I don't know if I've and seen it's, that. It's Ferris walking out into a hallway and he says, You're here? Why are you still here? The movie's oh, over. Right. Go, I go home. Which the after credit scene in Homecoming is not exactly that, but it is a fantastic cousin to that scene. Um, okay, so as we're winding down, um, uh, overall, a super successful um, entry into both yeah. the Spider-Man movie mythos as well as Marvel Studios. Uh, gosh darn it, these people just keep making awesome movie after awesome movie. It's a little troubling almost as we wait for like, what's the one they're going to do that's really going to stink? But it's not this one. This one also they do a great job with. Um, and even though it, to me, even though it feels like it's still in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it still feels different in its own way. It still feels like they're discovering yeah. new ways to tell these stories, which I know what you mean. is pretty cool. Really cool. Um Anything else that you want to add? Anything we need to mention before we go? No, I don't think so. No. Is your spider sense tingling at all? It is. Or is that just an alarm meaning that uh, we're out of time? No, I think it's Charlie. Oh. Something's wrong with Charlie. That's your little bro. Your spider sense is tingling because your little brother. I'll tell you what's wrong with him. He won't go to sleep <laughs> ever. And on that happy note, we bid you adieu. May all of your webs 
be solid and secure as you swing through the concrete jungle of your life. Good night, everybody. Let me tell you a few of the reasons why comic book artist Jan Dersima is so great. Number one, she has a giant pile of published work with DC Comics and Marvel, including runs on Arion, Lord of Atlantis, Sergeant Rock, and X-Factor. Number two, during her 10 years drawing Star Wars for Dark Horse, she co-created the characters of the blue-skinned Twi'lek Jedi Ayla Sakura and Jedi on the Edge Quinlan Voss, both of whom eventually made the leap to the Star Wars prequels and the Clone Wars animated series respectively. And reason number three, Jan and I sat down one year ago at the 2016 Garden State Comic Fest and had a great interview outside on a lovely breezy day. But when you have no wind guard on your recording device, you might end up with a totally unusable recording. And that's just what happened. But just a couple weeks back at the 2017 edition of the Garden State Comic Fest, Jan was kind enough to sit with me again for round two, and it turned out beautifully. What's the lesson there? Never underestimate the usefulness of a wind guard. Or the flat-out awesomeness as both an artist and as a human being of Jan Dersima. Jan Dersima is a comic book artist that has worked on all kinds of books over decades in the industry. Sergeant Rock, Aryan Lord of Atlantis for DC, X-Factor at Marvel, just to name a tiny portion of her work. But her 10 years drawing the various corners of the Star Wars galaxy for Dark Horse Comics is what she's most known for, especially in my house, as I'm really fairly confident that I own a copy of every Star Wars project that you've worked on. Jan, welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts. Thank you very much. I, I saw that wow, and there was a little bit of pity there, and that's okay, I accept that. That's, I'm all right with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, if, if I may gush a, a tiny bit more, I think that the work that you did within the prequel era of Star Wars with, um, with writer John Astrander, of course, uh, actually improves the films themselves. And I'm not a prequel hater by any stretch, but I, I thought that... Lucas and the production team created some amazing storytelling concepts and visual elements which you and John then ran with and really brought to dramatic life in a way that the movies didn't do or didn't have time to do, of course. For example, um, Count Dooku became a formidable villain to me because of what you guys did with him in the comics. Um, was there anything that you saw in the films that you said, John, we've got to do such and such in the comics. I've got a great idea for this, or or please let me draw so and so. Well, the only, the way that um, a lot of the uh, stuff we did came about was uh, we got Quinlan Voss and Ayla Secura. Mm -hmm. It came about because of the films and because Lucasfilm was allowing us to do um, things that weren't really. Uh, heavily connected to the film, so something outside of it. They, they wanted something that wasn't connected. We asked if we could go see um, uh, the, the movie and then bring a character into the comic book, so we did. That's how we developed Quinlan Voss and Ayla, um, by going to see the movies and then developing these characters from that. Um, so, I lost track of the question. Oh, that's okay. That's all right. We've got people shouting <laughs> all around it's us. That's very all right. Distracting. So, yeah, yeah. so Lucasfilm wanted to do something that wasn't necessarily like they knew we're not going to have the time to do well, something yeah. in the movie. I mean, they weren't going to expand on certain things. You don't have time within the sure. movies to expand on every little detail. But the comic book sort of gives you that that way to uh, pin to highlight things and to, to pinpoint characters, and um, and that's what we really did with the comics. Uh, 
kind of a world within a world kind of thing, expanding the expanded universe, of course, expanding the Lucasfilm and Star Wars universe into something that they would never get to. So we weren't stepping on any toes, we weren't infringing on anybody, we're getting to play in the sandbox, but we weren't, we were just leaving it all as it was. Right. You know, so we didn't have to be privy to any big secrets, we didn't have to worry about anything. As long as we played within what was established, we were fine. Yeah. Which, and probably the, uh, maybe the best example of that is literally the fact that the movies skipped over the Clone Wars proper. We sort of, you know, end episode two with the Clone Wars have begun (laughs) and start with three like, well, that's that. We wrap that up. Which meant that that many creators, and certainly you among them, had this glorious three-year sandbox, as you say, Mm -hmm. to, to tell those stories. Yeah, it was wonderful. I mean, getting that opportunity to, to have this blank slate. We, we, you know, we knew it had to end a certain way. We knew where it was going, but we could play within that any way we wanted to. Right. Yeah. So for those that don't know, uh, as you mentioned a second ago, you created the look of the Jedi characters Ayla Sakura, the blue-skinned Twi'lek from Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, and Quinlan Voss, who is name-dropped in Revenge of the Sith and then appears in the Clone Wars animated series. Um, so these were major characters, of course, in the comics before they caught Lucasfilm's eye and then got co-opted into the official canon. What uh, what did you think of the on-screen interpretations of those characters? Um, well, um, of course, Quinn wasn't in the movies on sure, screen, yes. but Ayla looked fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Amy Allen played her perfectly. She looked exactly like her. Um, I they couldn't have picked someone better for Ayla, you know, and uh, and she just looked fantastic in the arena and everything. I was sad when she got killed in the third movie, <laughs> sure. but sorry, spoiler, but um, <laughs> <laughs> ten-year-old spoilers. Yeah, sorry. ten-year-old spoilers. But um, but it was really cool when I found out that she was going to be in the movie. Um, they, you know, they said to me, "Are you sitting down?" And I was like, "Yeah, kind of." And they're like, "Well, because it's like, what now? Am I getting fired?" You know, like, "Oh, Ayla's going to be in the second movie." I was like, "Okay, <laughs> that's so cool." You know, yeah. <clears throat> it was a super cool moment. Yeah, absolutely. For sure, yeah. Absolutely. And and like you say, you've you've met Amy Ellen oh, before yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. That's great. Uh, you've. You know what, when you're, when you're working on a project based on licensed material like Star Wars, are there special challenges regarding dealing with studio approvals or, or feel pressure to capture, capture actor likenesses? I mean, aside from what the fans want and are not going to be shy about letting you know, uh, do you have to jump through any, any hurdles for the studios? Well, I think you really have to, uh, if you're doing something like that, it's a franchise, you really have to capture the likenesses as best you can. You're not going to get everyone perfect. Um, and some are easier than others, but I think that you keep your job. You get your job because you can do it, and you keep your job because you can create likenesses. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really don't consider it jumping through hurdles or anything. It's just part of the job. It's part sure. of the gig. Sure. Yeah. Are there are there any in your time with uh, with licensed material any that are easier than others? I've heard other people talk about how like Harrison's Ford Harrison Ford's face, and I know that you didn't get to do a lot of Han Solo necessarily, but that his face is just slightly asymmetrical, and it's driving me crazy. Or the hardest ones for me were Mace Windu mm. and Count Dooku. And it's because they have such interesting faces. Uh, the more interesting a character's face, the harder it is to do. On the other hand, drawing Natalie Portman, um, Queen of Adal, really difficult too, for the opposite reason. You have to simplify women's faces or they end up looking like little kids or they look, look too old. Oh, interesting. So you really have to simplify down to just a few elements. Huh. You know, okay. whereas for, for Doku and for Windu, you really had to, um, the, the, the proportions and the it just they're just such individuals it's so hard to do yeah 
you yeah. know? Yeah. Right. And of course, you know, when you're dealing with Samuel L. Jackson, not that everyone in those movies isn't insanely famous at this yeah. point, but Sam Jackson is such a, a character that everyone's seen him so often that immediately you'd look at a piece of art and be like, eh, nope, or yep, nailed it. Yeah, it's either nailed it or you don't, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I did a whole issue with him, um, the uh, Jedi Mace Windu. Yes. And, um, <clears throat> and I think it was pretty successful. I heard he saw it and liked it. So oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> do, you, do you have other stories like that? Do you ever, does it ever get back to you with like, you know what? So-and-so read this. Once in a while. Once in a while. <laughs> it's one of the rare occasions, yeah. 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 Well, that's very cool. I, I do think that he is a comic book guy, so that would not surprise yeah, me necessarily. Yeah. So when Disney acquired Lucasfilm, there was a sense that it was only a matter of time, like I said before, Star Wars franchise was going to go back to Marvel, and that everything at Dark Horse was going to become legend status and quote-unquote not count anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, which, which, of course, is what the case... Did you have feelings about how that all went down, or did you also see, like, there's the acquisition. Hey, that's exciting, but, oh, wait a minute. When you're working in comics, nothing's forever. You know, characters are always getting retrofitted. They're always getting killed, changed, evolved, whatever. So it's... I've been working in comics since 1980. I'm kind of used to it. <laughs> sure. um, I didn't expect it would last forever, but i got to tell you, a lot of the fans... For them, it will last forever because they really love the work and they love the stories. And I think if you're in the minds of the fans as being, you know, a fun thing and, and them enjoying it, you never, you're never really gone, yep. you know, and it doesn't change anything. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a leading question for sure, but I can tell you that my own, my own opinion is absolutely the same way. And I remember at the time that Dark Horse had an incredibly active message board uh, of people that were not shy about putting their opinions on there of how that was all going and and extremely loyal and supportive and a lot of folks, you know, that was where boycotts were going to begin and I'm done with Star Wars because of this and a lot of then very uh, slightly more reasoned people thinking like, no one is taking this off your bookshelf. These, these still exist. They're still wonderful. Please still enjoy them. And in fact, I would encourage everyone to do so if, if that's the case. Um, so that, that said, I know it would be a huge charge to those people, myself included, if you were ever part of Star Wars again. Uh, if Marvel called, because your first, one of your early jobs was on Marvel Star Wars, it right? Was, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Issue 92? 92. 92. I, think. I, I can neither confirm nor deny at I, this time. I think, or I don't, can't remember the number, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it had a wonderful Bill Sienkiewicz cover and uh, Tom Mandrake and I did the art inside yes. of it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, would, uh, if, if you got the chance to play in that sandbox again, was there ever a character that you thought, you know what, I'd really like to, not to mention the new characters that they're rolling out all the time? You know, I don't know. I mean, I would, I would definitely do more Star Wars. I just, I would do whatever character they they brought to me because they're all fun I mean sure. yeah I have I have a lot of favorites but I can always be tempted <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely so so expanding beyond Star Wars of course you've created stories for some of the biggest characters in comics including runs on X-Factor Sergeant Rock what kind of challenges are present when working on existing characters and mythology and and you did in fact just speak about how in comics everything is sort of fluid. You you might touch a character and then someone else is going to. Um, do you when you start on anything like that? Is there the the desire or the need or whatever to put your own stamp on it? Or and if so, how heavy a stamp should that be or not be? Well, I usually do a ton of reference and research, and if the character is being changed, 
then I'll definitely try to put my own stamp on it. But if they're just changing artists and they want to continue with what they're doing, I just try to go with the flow and create something that is going to work for them and work for the character. You were one of the creators of Arian, Lord of Atlantis, mm-hmm. at DC, uh, and were on the book for roughly three years, right? And when, when you do a long run on a book like Arian or Star Wars or whatnot, is it hard not to think of the characters as, as yours, and will there be some future creative team that better not hurt your baby? We worked hard establishing this. Yeah, you know, there is a feeling toward that. You might, you might feel like, oh, I don't want anybody messing with this. Now, with something like Arian, it was for DC Comics. And why I have some ownership in it, it's and it's my baby, but it's not sure. my baby. It belongs to DC Comics. Yeah. On the other hand, if I created something under my own imprint and somebody else wanted to mess with it, then I would feel like, no, no, you can't do that. Yes. But with a character like that, you create these characters and you you throw them to the, the wind, and then you hope you know, you go out, you, you send them out to see what'll happen, see how they grow. You know. <laughs> sure. The sure. same thing with all the Star Wars characters I created. I have no say. <clears throat> so you just. You send them out into the world, and and you just watch them, yeah. <laughs> and and hope nothing ridiculous comes comes yeah, around. Like, right. come on, that was a great arc. Why did you undo that? Did you do that right? Yeah. When uh, let's let's go backwards a little bit. When did you when did you discover comics? Were you uh, were you young? Did that come later on in life? I was a big comic books fan right from when I was a little kid because my dad would take us to the grocery store. My mom would go shopping. My sister and I would sit in the car and my dad would buy us two comic books each or one 25 cent special. And that's how I became a comic books fan. So I had a stack of comics, maybe about, I don't know, 20 inches high. And that was, we read and we reread them and we reread them until they were dog-eared. And then I got away from comics when I was about, I don't know, 12, 13 or so. Got away from comics for a long time. Um, got into more illustration, more book illustration. I always was an avid reader. And then got back into comics when I went to the Kubert School. And I had to catch up with everything. So all the guys are like, oh, have you ever read Marvel? I only read DC Comics when I was a kid. Well, they didn't have Marvel at the place I went to. So I had to catch up on all the Marvel comics and all the Marvel characters. I had no idea. You know, I read Superman, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Batman, but I never read any of the Marvel stuff. Not Spider-Man or... I, I think your story is funny because it's fascinating to know that it's really like whoever just was doing the buying for some random grocery store yeah. has such an impact well, then the on grocery store it was like a little stationary store that was near the grocery store and that's all they were getting for some reason they did not have marvel books they had gold key they had dc they had um um oh a couple other ones but they just never had the marvel stuff yeah that's, that's awesome. Well, here's to the parents and uncles and aunts and whatever that were those ones like, you want to get a comic? Sure. Here we go. Let's do it. And boy, did, I was the same way. I looked forward to that. Like, let's go to... <sighs> it's quiet for an hour. You know? <laughs> right, right. Everyone wins in that scenario. So, so you mentioned some of those characters. Do you remember any writers or artists at that point that really made an impression on you? Maybe not as a kid necessarily. Nobody signed the work back then. You know, I do remember going to the barber shop where we used to get our hair cut. Because yeah. we all got those real short haircuts. My mom took us there because it was by the dentist. It was easy. Sure. And so I remember seeing Sergeant Rock and books like that with Joe Kubert had signed. And I was really fascinated with those books as well. That, that, that was the only time I ever saw a signature on the books. A lot of times they guys didn't sign them. There was no credits. So I don't even know who I was looking at, to be honest. Sure, yeah. sure. 
So you mentioned that you were in illustration then for a while and then and then went to the Kubert School, which seems to be a relatively hard turn into like, oh, I'm, oh, it's comics. I'm doing comics. Uh, was, was there... Was there something that, that prompted you to make a shift from illustration in general into sequential art? Well, the, the first thing is, with illustration at the time, there weren't a lot of books. Um, there weren't a lot of books being illustrated. They maybe had a couple spot illustrations. I had tried getting some work doing illustrations for science fiction and fantasy magazines. But the work was kind of spotty, sporadic kind of thing. But with comics, I got to do storytelling and I got to do artwork. And to me, the, the combination of those two things is what I, I knew the minute I was found out there was a school to do this, that the, this is what I want to do. It was like, like oh, why? Yeah, of course, why not? Why, why didn't I think of this, you know? So it just kind of fell in my lap. Yeah. So we've talked about the fact that you've had a busy year, which I want to hear about, and I hope that among those things, uh, those projects that have kept you so busy is the uh, Hexer Dusk project that you worked on with John Ostrander again, or reteamed with him. So a year ago when we spoke a little bit, there was all kinds of Hexer Dusk going on. Yeah. What's, what's the latest on that project? I'm still working on the drawing. Um, we've expanded the book a little bit. Um, it was going to be 60 pages, now it looks more like 72 okay. and maybe more. We expanded on a short story we're doing within it as well, to 10 pages instead of 6 pages. So the, the backers will be getting more content, but they're just going to have to wait a little longer, unfortunately. It's just taken a lot more time. And I think the reason for that is I'm being particular and very fussy about it. I'm being really, really, it's got to be right. Sure. It's got to be right. And um, I've redrawn like 10 pages, which is never a good thing. And if I was working for a company, I would never do that because they'd want it on a deadline. I'd feel like I'm, I want to give myself a deadline, and the end of the year is when I really want to get it sent out, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I'd rather have it done right. I'd rather have this first thing done correctly and get everything in place um, for future stories. And if it takes a little longer, it takes a little longer. Sure, absolutely, and I'm, I would think that fans would appreciate that as well. I mean, anyone who's been following your work, I, I mean, I've personally, I've loved seeing the evolution of, of your work, and even if I... Got a, I mean, like I said, I, I have that old Marvel issue, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure I was paying attention. That's when I was still going to the the, uh, the grocery store and getting my comics for. You can yeah. pick two, yeah, right. Star Wars for sure. Yeah. And um, but even the early Dark Horse uh, Star Wars days, from where it began to where it ended, and and seeing like the continual growth that hopefully everyone goes through in their career was so staggering that I would be among those throngs to be like, yeah, oh, I want to see, I want to see this right. I want to see some quality Jan Dersima. So is the the Kickstarter still active for that? Is the, the fundraising portion still alive? Um, yeah, you can still go to Indiegogo. We did an Indiegogo okay. in demand. Indiegogo, right. So yeah, you can go to that and, okay. and get it. You just look up Hexerdusk Indiegogo and it'll take you right to it. You know, Google's good that way. <laughs> sure is, sure is. Is, is there anything else floating around right now that people should know about or look for? Um, well, let's see, I did a, um, about four, four or five, I can't remember, um, uh, backup stories for Scooby-Doo, Scooby Apocalypse. Uh, for DC. I did a, um, a horror story for Sandy Carpenter for her Halloween issue. Um, what else have I done recently? I'm working on Summit for Lionforge. Yeah, so I have a lot of things going right now. Yeah, yeah, and it all kind of came down at once, like the last couple months. I've been working on four different things at once, and it's been crazy. You yeah. know, it's been really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I love all that. And if fans want to follow this and know what's coming out, what's the best place online to follow you? Are you a Twitterer or? Facebook is good. Um, I don't really have a website right now, um, so but I'm, I'm working on one. But Facebook, if you want to find what I'm doing, look on Facebook. You know, I, I let everybody just follow me along and just see my stuff. And it's like, you know, whatever you want to look at, artwork here, you know. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. Having those little peaks is so much fun for, for fans. On behalf of all fandom, I can tell you that, uh, that that's always a real charge to see that. So thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> To see a preview of Jan Dersima's independent sci-fi action comic book project, Hexer Dusk, go check out the Hexer Dusk page on Indiegogo.com. Even though the project is already 150% funded, you can still contribute and guarantee some great perks for yourself. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Good work, everyone! We did it! Many thanks to my guest Jan Dersima and my movie-analyzing son Scott Barton. And thanks of course to you, fair listener, for inviting me into your ear canals to nerd out. It means more to me than you know, truly. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What did you like? What should be frozen in carbonite and hung on the living room wall of an intergalactic crime lord? You can tell me by leaving me a message at one of the show's many social media channels. Those would be... Number one, the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. Number two, on Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts. And number three, on Instagram, you can check out pictures of my own geeky treasure trove at 1.21 underscore Gigawatts. It's new every day. Plus, you can find all of those feeds in one magnificent destination at the 1.21 Gigawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to www.121gigawatts.com and delight in the nerdliness. And if you're not already aware, every episode of this podcast is available for free in the podcast section at the iTunes store. It's so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. Whether you're a subscriber or not, you can leave the show a review, hopefully a good one, on iTunes, which will help more people find the show, which would make me a happy, happy man. It might take 30 seconds. That's it. Please do so. I would appreciate it. And if you're not an iTunes user, you can always find us by searching for 1.21 gigawatts at soundcloud.com. Huge gratitude to the gatekeeper of the gain, composer and my co-producer, David Sisko. You are and remain the best, Cisco. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of Geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's Nerd Rock Band H2Awesome with our radtastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Every geek wants is what we got From Doctor Who to Aqualad You might meet Luke and Leia's dad Pop culture that is super rad Hosted by some guy named Brad It'll rock you to your nylon Cylon socks 1.21 freaking gigawatts
Quinlan Voss has that effect. Ah, yes. That Jedi has quite a reputation. Maybe overstating it, Cody. Let's just say he's crazy. Ship entry from the west, sir. Commander, looking good? Kenobi, you look worse for wear. How's temple life? Good to see you too. Yes, well, if you could tell time half as well as you could stick a landing, we wouldn't be behind schedule now, would we? Well, that's your opinion, man. 